Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back. Uh, for those of you who joined me for the redo, uh, I, I had to redo last week's class because <clears throat> we um, uh, my recording got completely destroyed on my other one, so I had to re-record it on Sunday evening. Uh, some people... Uh, some people were able to join me. Some of you came to see the same class a second time, which I have to say is a little above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm, so those of you who did come on Sunday night will be familiar with my peculiar surroundings. No, I'm not in another hotel bathroom. Uh, this is a this is a bedroom. Uh, it's sort of a, a dorm room um, in uh, uh, in uh, a, a very nice guest apartment suite here at Johnson C. Smith University in uh, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I am staying for a, a conference at which I am speaking about Signum University. No, it is not a prison cell. I know that this is not the most flattering view of it that I have behind me here. Uh, it looks, uh, I know, very uh, uh, institutional. I, I, I acknowledge that. But it's really, it's really quite nice from other viewpoints, uh, I, I, I admit. Um, Anyhow, <laughs> they're not much for wall decorations. I will, I will say the walls could perhaps be decorated a bit more enthusiastically. But other than that, it's really, it's really fine. Anyhow, so um, this evening we are talking about the horror of Dracula. Uh, we begin sort of what is really the first film in a new generation of Dracula films in America, 1958, uh, the first of the Hammer uh, uh, Dracula films. Which, despite what would would appear to be a rather conclusive ending to this film, uh, not only did Dracula come back, but Christopher Lee as Dracula came back like six more times um, in uh, future Hammer Dracula films. Um, so I don't quite know how that happened. I haven't seen them. But uh, um, anyway, uh, there's... Uh, uh, it, it, anyhow, this, as I say, this is this is sort of the uh, the first of a series, and yes, Tomas, we get to see more blood in this one. Um, so we're jumping forward, what twenty seven years here between the Bela Lugosi version and the Christopher Lee version here uh, of Dracula, and I want to uh, begin by I think making the obvious observation, and I'm sure it's the main thing that was on all of your minds as you were watching through this film, like the thing that you just kept think, find yourself thinking again and again uh, as, you're, as you're proceeding through the story, and that is, man, this is exactly like the book. I mean, it's practically a transcript, right, of the original story. I mean, how close they stayed to all the events of the book is really pretty remarkable, right? I mean, just to refresh your memories, uh, because, you know, perhaps... You've forgotten, or maybe even a few of you were so unobservant as to overlook all of the, you know, the, the enormous uh, parallels among them. Um, I'll refresh our memories, right? Okay, so um, we begin, of course, with the diary of Jonathan Harker as he's going to the castle. He arrives at the castle and is hosted peculiarly but lavishly. Unfortunately, soon after that, he finds himself a prisoner, is almost seduced by a vampire woman, but fortunately Dracula, well, sort of fortunately, but kind of creepily as well, and rather violently and angrily with, like, rage in his burning red eyes, Dracula intervenes at the last second, pulls the vampire woman away, and uh, uh, Jonathan subsequently escapes by climbing out the window. 
Lucy, of course, uh, back on the home front, has fallen mysteriously ill of an inexplicable malady which completely stumps Dr. Seward. Van Helsing is called in for a second opinion, of course, because Dr. Seward is so clueless, uh, and successfully diagnoses the case as indeed a, uh, a case of vampirism, though he doesn't really come clean with everybody else about that. But he, you know, he knows and he knows what to do, um, including, of course, to put garlic flowers throughout her room. Um, but despite his best efforts, uh, his instructions go awry through really no fault of his own. But anyway, you know, his instructions are not carried out and Lucy ends up being lost and dies all only to rise again. As the undead, she returns, of course, and preys upon children who wander out of their own volition to find her again after having encountered her and being bitten by her the first time uh, because they seem drawn to her. Finally, Van Helsing brings Arthur to confront her at her tomb. Uh, Lucy almost bites Arthur, whose love mis- misleads him. You know, mis- he's, he's misguided uh, by his love for Lucy into almost allowing her to close with him and bite him while she tries to you know, come to him and approach him and draw him to her under cover of her love. But fortunately for Arthur, Van Helsing intervenes at the last second by interposing a crucifix between him and Lucy uh, and driving Lucy back. Uh, after the traumatic uh, but satisfying staking of Lucy, whose face is seen to fall back into peace and to be once more the Lucy that Arthur loved, uh, uh, they... Uh, um, Whereas, oh yeah, uh, they, uh, well, anyway, after that, um, Arthur is uh, refreshed with a stiff glass of brandy. At this point, Van Helsing hands over Jonathan Harker's journal and recruits uh, Arthur to uh, uh, help him in the hunt for Dracula, which they set out to do together. Unfortunately, while the men are out hunting Dracula, Mina is taken in, uh, you know, in in their lodgings uh, by Dracula, who has gotten access to her through a male stooge that he uses for his own ends in order to gain access uh, to Mina, the stooge who was duped and manipulated by Dracula. Oh, I forgot to mention that uh, that scene where the, the you know they, they find Dracula's victim lying across the bed, almost completely drained of blood, uh, but not quite. But fortunately, she's saved and partially recuperated uh, by a blood transfusion from Arthur, who is, of course, her true love and the one most appropriate. Uh, to give her the uh, transfusion, and she's not entirely, but 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 at least partially restored uh, by that operation. Almost forgot to to mention that. And of course, we end the story with a high p- high speed chase, chasing down uh, Dracula and killing him. Uh, you know, right near his, you know, uh, you know, it's coming back to his uh, home base, and of course, upon his death, he falls into dust, and immediately um, upon that, the mark. Uh, that is left, that was burned into Mita's flesh by the touch of the holy symbol, uh, fades away miraculously into health, and everyone who is still alive lives happily ever after. See, it's exactly the same. I, I mean, I, 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 isn't that just stunning, right? I mean, stunning, stunning. So, it's, this is basically, this is the same story as the book. Um, there aren't really all that many differences to be mentioned. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, Tom Hillman says, been a good class. Good night. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a, now, I mean, <laughs> okay, obviously, I, 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 I do this because 
I found this film exceedingly strange. Um, but I do want to emphasize at the beginning, it's exactly the kind of adaptation that it's really easy to kind of come away with this saying, like, what are these people doing? Like, do they even, are they even familiar with the story? Why, like, why, this, so many of the changes are so strange. There were multiple moments in the story where I'm like, I have literally no idea where we're going from here. I, 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 I've, I, I cannot guess what's going to happen next, which is kind of a fun place to be in a way. Uh, you know, it's like, but... But I do want to, I mean, so it would be easy to come charging in and be like, wow, what did they do to this story? And that's certainly a viable question and one that we'll spend the rest of class talking about. But um, but I do want to sort of give them credit for the fact they're not just abandoning the story entirely. This is absolutely not, uh, you know, an adaptation which just chucks the book out the window at all, right? Um, you can see lots and lots of elements, as I was, of course, trying to illustrate there that they have kept it very deliberately kept, kept even very deliberately parallel and it's not just like general plot shapes there are even specific details and specific scenes and moments really obscure ones which are retained like for instance remember when dr van helsing is uh is is listening to himself on the phonograph and dictating notes into the phonograph and the person comes to the door but hesitates to knock because they hear what sounds like him talking to somebody else and when they come in they're a little confused it's like oh i thought i heard i thought i heard you talking to someone else remember that that's straight from the book it was mina and john and john seward of course in the book um but that was uh, that was that was directly um um that was directly, directly from there. Um, so yeah, exactly, James. It was even a, a you know, a, a, a cylinder recorder, which I actually found really cool. I don't even think I've ever seen one of those. Uh, that was like the the, the best uh, view of a a, a a cylindrical phonograph um, I've ever I've ever seen. Um, so anyway, the, the, my point is simply, if uh, if your reaction which I would find perfectly understandable, uh, to the film was to, to, to be just kind of reeling at trying to parse and come to grips with like what it was doing and all the ways in which it was different. I mean, I actually, I mean, I, I mean, I have like notes I was taking as I was watching through and I'm like, wait, wait, that's Mina. Hang on. Wait. So Lucy is Arthur's sister, right? And wait, Arthur's married to Mina. I mean, I, I, it took me a while to really kind of sort this out because I'm like, hang on, my mind is blown here uh, trying to figure out the relationship. And Lucy is the one who's engaged to Jonathan and okay yeah exactly Nancy the weird the weird the weird wife swap thing yeah exactly Um, so uh, anyhow there's you know moments like that where I'm like where are we and what on earth are we doing but I don't want to be unfair Right. This is absolutely not a film which has just chucked the book out the window. It's a it's a book that's thinking very carefully. It's a film that's thinking very carefully about the book. And uh, uh, let's see. You're like, let me scroll up a second. One of you just made a comment that I wanted to come back to. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, Yana uh, was saying, uh, you know, is there an adaptation that is faithful? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are. I, that word, of course, is so weighted, right? I mean. Um, Faithful. I, I, I dislike that word because it's not really a very uh, thoughtful word. It's not a very critical word. It's a more sort of emotionally charged word. I mean, normally when you say it was faithful, 
you mean that you, I mean usually that kind of means you like it right you know that like it's it, there's it seems it speaks to like some kind of consonance between like the idea of the book that you have in your head and the idea of the movie that you have in your head and if those two things really seem to fit together and be pointing in the same direction you consider it you consider it faithful um it certainly is not a question of uh simple overlap right or like does it get the details of the story right uh, tom hillman just uh, a couple minutes ago brought up the uh watership down cartoon adaptation which of course i did an entire uh, uh show on um uh you know an entire episode on during my watership down class and that's a wonderful example the whole uh the whole point of my the whole argument that i was making in that class when talking about the watership down adaptation was that Watership, the adaptation, it gets the plot almost exactly right. It is incredibly faithful to the plot of the story. It deviates as little as really as you can, like, imagine a, a film compression, which has to be compressed, of course. Um, and yet, like, so point by point, detail by detail, it's almost entirely correct. And yet they, like, suck the entire soul out of the story and get it completely wrong. And I think in the end it's an entirely unfaithful adaptation, unfaithful to the spirit, if faithful to the letter. So the whole faith, the question of faithfulness is it's not really a very objective category. Um, nor, yeah, and James, I've heard about the new version. Uh, to which my primary response is, I'm available. I'd 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 be I'd happily consult. Just just throwing that out there. I doubt they'll call me, but if they were to call me, I'm 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 open. Um, uh, oh, good. Yeah, Tom Hillman uh, says that Karita assures her that the version starring her dog as Jonathan Harker will be faithful in every detail. Good. I, absolutely. I, that I, I absolutely believe. So Tom is alluding to a, a Twitter exchange that he and Karita and I were having yesterday, today. My days are all running together, but anyway, yeah. Okay, so. Let's uh, let's 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 get back to Dracula here. The point is, um, what's going on? So okay, it's it doesn't just leave the book behind. And for me, this is one of the main things that I. That's is like the first thing I look for in an adaptation. Um, is it still really thinking about the story? I mean, it's okay if it takes the story in its own direction. They've got to do something. You know, they're, they're telling their own story. I, you know, I'm not just gonna. It's totally unjust and unrealistic and even inappropriate to just sort of expect like the book projected up on the screen. Um, but I do, I will be happiest the more I see the uh, film engaging in a really thoughtful manner with the book. Um, and of course, as an extra bonus, I would kind of like the story of the film itself to be coherent. Um, that's another thing that I really look for in a film adaptation. And one of the primary uh, uh, qualifications on which the Hobbit films failed in the end. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so let's go back to the Dracula film. Horror of Dracula, what exactly is going on there? Well, let's try to go through, as I did before, I, I want to think about sort of a series of changes that they made. Those changes, of course, are sort of the easiest thing to latch on to, right, when starting to think about what direction is this story going to. Having, you know, a, a good grasp of the original stories, I hope we all do now, um, this will, I, I hope, help to kind of point us uh, in a profitable uh, direction. So let's um, uh, let's look at some let's look at some things. So the first sort of shock, right? I, the the film begins in what looks like a really remarkably similar to the book fashion, right? I love the emphasis on Jonathan's journal. 
and not only how we actually see him writing in his journal on several occasions, um, but the way we get that that voiceover narrative from Jonathan, right? So that we're, it's you know we have through the voiceover the voice of John, you know, Jonathan Harker in his diary framing the story, right? I, I love that. Even you know, the, so as it, even the way that it's timed to correspond with the events that are happening on this on the screen. I didn't show all this because I. I was trying to restrict myself from putting in infinite film clips, but um, when he's first crossing into, uh, you know, sort of approaching the castle on foot, just like in Nosferatu, um, he um, he crosses over the stream there, and he just and and the the narrator, the diary text says. I felt a, you know, a sudden chill as soon as I crossed over, but it was probably just due to the mountain stream that I was crossing over at the time, and it's it's you know it's it coincides with him with him crossing over. Um, but of course, then this is the uh, this is the moment of the big reveal. So we've had he's been downstairs, he had dinner. It was a little bit different. Dracula didn't meet him, right? We had the absentee instead of the merely eclectic uh, uh, host. Right, and then we got a somewhat sooner than expected encounter with one instead of three females. Right? Okay, um, but then you know, then it presented. Then Dracula came down, and we had sort of awkward, some awkward conversation, and he was brought up and welcomed, and it was revealed that Jonathan was a librarian, which is a little bit of a surprise. But I'm flexible, right? Solicitor, librarian, who really cares? And uh, then we come up to, but this is the moment when. All of a sudden, things take the 90-degree turn. That's very good. Did I not cut that? Boy, I messed up the... Really? I messed up the first clip. How about that? All right, here we go. At last, I have met Count Dracula. He accepts me as a man who has agreed to work among his books, as I intended. Wait, you mean you intended to work among his books? Or you intended him to accept you as that? It only remains for me now to await the daylight hours. Okay. It's creepy, I understand. I'd feel the same way if I were you. When, with God's help, I will forever end this man's reign of terror. Reign of Terror, which consists at least in part, apparently, of patrolling that path. That was a that was the Reign of Terror illustrated. Um, you can tell by the cape, the sweeping of the black cape, right? That that was a Reign of Terror. Presumably, he is, however, headed out on some very terrible mission. As of course, the next time we see Dracula, he will have fresh blood on his chin, as he almost always does. Um, so, uh, presumably, he's out. In fact, killing somebody, so it will turn out to be justified. Um, yeah, Reign of Terror, right? I gasped <laughs> when, I, when I was watching this film for the first time. Um, uh, okay, so um, 
And uh, yeah, Tom, it is really funny as if he's speaking at the speed at which he's writing. We see him stop to dip his pen very frequently in the inkwell. And he stops every time he, he stops. The, the narration stops every time he does something. And I love that. I love that, you know, the way in which it creates that impression of, of the diary really framing the narrative. So cool. Really neat stuff. Um, but yeah, Rachel, so we have Jonathan Harker, professional vampire slayer, cum librarian, right? I, so, okay. Um, so the entire context of Jonathan Harker's visit to Castle Dracula is utterly changed, right? Instead of being the unsuspecting Englishman who comes in and, you know, under false pretenses, is being himself betrayed, right? He's there. Oh, I mean, he's not there under false pretenses. That is, he's been invited under false pretenses, sort of. Actually, not exactly. He's been invited to do a real estate transaction, and indeed a real estate transaction is done. So I suppose that would be unfair of me to accuse Dracula of that, but you understand what I mean, right? It's not him who's doing the deceiving. He is the deceive-e, not the deceiver in that whole transaction. And then, but now here, we have that on its head, right? Dracula is the dupe. He's going to accept me as a mere innocuous librarian, and he's described as an eminent man, Harker is. I, I don't know exactly wherein his eminence lies as an eminent librarian. Um, the impression that I get, the only conclusion I feel that I can draw, is that he's an eminent scholar in some sense. I don't exactly know the sense in which, like, what does he study and what upon what is his reputation based. Um, since all I know about him is as a solicitor, I, uh, I, I don't really know. Um, but uh, anyhow, yeah, so James asked, did Dracula actually seek out a librarian? It almost sounds that way, right? Like he's like, my, my, uh, you know, my collection is in a mess, you know, and uh, we'll, we'll actually look at that scene uh, l- l- later on. I made a point of uh, including clips of almost all of Dracula's dialogue, which of course didn't take me all that very long. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, James James Lebach says there aren't nearly enough undercover librarians in literature. Um, I mean, yeah, can you ever have enough like people who are librarians by day and like secretly on an action hero mission to save the world? Like, I mean, that's kind of cool. Anyhow, so um, yeah, so. This is, you know, this this was the first moment um, where I feel like, okay, I no longer have any idea where I am, right, or where this story is headed. Um, it's still parallel, right? The whole Jonathan Harker in uh, Castle Dracula thing is still parallel, but the entire force of that whole sequence is in, is completely reversed. Uh, you know, what's going on, and how do we understand this? Well, let's let's keep looking. Uh, let's keep watching some of this here. Okay, more Jonathan's giant, Jonathan's diary. This is later on, after his unfortunate experience. As you see, he's still got blood on his collar there. I have become a victim of Dracula and the woman in his power. It... Concerning which, I have become a victim of Dracula and the woman in his power. Okay, so how did that work? Did he know? I mean, he had to have known, right? Maybe he knew. I don't know. This, that, that I didn't really get. Like, exactly how dumb was Jonathan being? Or, like, are we supposed to understand he was being totally mind-controlled? Um, uh, 
Yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't really know. Anyway, sorry. It be that I am doomed to be one of them. If that is so, I can only pray that whoever finds my body will possess the knowledge. Yep. <laughs> to do what is necessary. Lost a day. Soon it will be dark. While my senses are still my own, I must do what I set out to do. I must find the resting place of Dracula and there end his existence forever. Sounds like a plan. So that was the plan all along. We're going to end his existence. First, let's stash the journal. Shrine of the Madonna in Child. Good spot. They will walk again. I don't know whose shrine is that, like, right there in the front yard of Castle Dracula. Do the peasants really come there to maintain the shrine of the Virgin? Right there, five yards away from the... They wouldn't even drive the carriage there. No worries. Okay. Notice, though, the language about, like, the, the, the references to God and to prayer and things. We're getting much more of that kind of spiritual language in this film than we got in either of the other two. <laughs> Didn't get all that much language in the first one, did we? But you know what I mean. Vampires are apparently anti-coffin lids as a general rule. I mean, like, for the purposes of, of concealment. Uh, but, uh, you know, apparently on at home they just kind of like to cut loose and... Uh, go, go go with the open casket look. Um, okay. Um, so... Hmm. <laughs> Nancy wants that writing desk. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, lids can be heavy, Ian. I acknowledge, though, they're supposed to be... They're supposed to be strong, right? Um, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Um... Uh, yeah, Tony Mead asks an excellent question. Uh, do you think that the change in context is due to vampire knowledge being so universal by the late 50s that they thought the clueless traveler theme wouldn't work anymore? You know, Tony, that's a great question, especially since I would argue you can see that at work already in Nosferatu in 1922, right? It's 25 years after the book has been published, but already you can see a radical difference in how the word vampire and the concept of the vampire is being deployed in that film, right? A radical difference. Even the film has already given up on the completely innocuous... I mean, John, John Harker does... I mean, excuse me, Jonathan, he's still Jonathan in that film. Uh, Jonathan Harker does... I mean, he is, like, kind of clueless, but that's not what I mean. Think about Van Helsing in that film, right? In Nosferatu, the, or excuse me, the professor, the unnamed professor uh, in the bathrobe. Um, who lectures in his bathrobe. Did you notice he was lecturing in his bathroom? I have no idea why he was in the lecture hall in his bathroom. What was I talking about? Oh, yes, his lectures. So when he's lecturing, and we get those bits in Nosferatu, the silent film, about his, lect- like his lectures about like the Venus flytrap, right? And he's showing the Venus flytrap, and he, so he illustrates the Venus flytrap, and he says, this is the vampire. Truly, it is the vampire of the plant world. Remember that? Right? That is 
totally different from how um, that is totally different from how the book talks about vampires, right? It uses other things to try to explain what vampires are, and you get like Arthur, like that great scene with Arthur being like undead, not alive. What is is this a nightmare or what is this? I mean, it's just the complete alien, completely alien idea of this entire concept. Um, I love when Van Helsing later in this film says what we like to call the undead, right? And again, the way he introduces that is not with with uh, um, with Van Helsing in the book. You get the clear sense that he was coining a term. Like he didn't have a word for this. Even Van Helsing didn't have a word. There wasn't really a word for this. So he made one up, like on the spot. And it's a Van Helsing-ish word, right? Undead, right? As you know. Now it's, you know, totally suave, right? We like to call them the undead, right? Um, totally, totally different. So um so Tony, yeah. I mean, again, I think we're certainly past that in 1958. As I said, I think we were past the whole, like, what is the vampire? I don't even know. Um, And all three of the films have shown that um, presumption that the audience is going to know what vampires are, which the book absolutely does not show, I don't think. Um, uh, So, yeah, Gerald, it it does make Dracula the Venus flytrap of the human world. Which, when you think about it that way, is really not a good metaphor. <laughs> it's just, it's just not. Though, again, in Nosferatu, actually, it kind of is, right? What do all those things that he's illustrating? He also shows. I don't know what is the thing that he shows. He shows like a a little um, a microscopic invertebrate, right? Capturing another microscopic invertebrate, and he's like, see, look, it is like a it is like a phantom, right? Because it's translucent, like. Stretching, stretching things a little bit there, Van Helsing, right to to ride your own little hobby horse there, but whatever. But again, see, uh, see, Gerald, you see the point though, right? In that film, yeah, Predator, exactly. So yes, uh, in fact, the Nosferatu is just like the Venus flytrap of the human world, right? Uh, the hunter who like entraps his prey and eats them. Um, I'm presumably, if flies uh, uh, used coffins. Then, like, around when a new Venus flytrap grows, there'd be, like, a parade of, like, fly coffins, you know, presumably, right? So, so yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's kind of, it's pretty much how it works. Um, okay. So, um, Jonathan, my first thought when, um, uh, when I was watching this movie for the first time and... They get, you know, he gets to the like and end his reign of terror, and I'm like, what is going on? My first thought was, okay, maybe this we're imagining Jonathan Harker on a personal vendetta. Maybe they're like flipping the plot in some way. Like maybe he's already, you know, we're kind of starting in Medius Res instead of at the beginning, and and Dracula's already like bitten Mina, and Jonathan's coming after him on like personal vendetta or something like that though I wasn't really sure like maybe we're going to flash back in time and they're going to do a time thing I had no idea I had no idea Um, but this past scene which you know we stopped watching so long ago that doubtless you've all forgotten what on earth it was um, you know here his last journal entry shows A that he is like one of the like Illuminati, right? He knows about vampires, and there is more, right? This is not just like, 
you know, no one will ever believe me. Like, only those who have experienced what I have experienced. But no, it's like, there are some people out there. I just hope that whoever it is who discovers my body will be one of those people who knows, like, what to do in order to save my soul. The implication is there is a, you know, class of people or something. Um, <laughs> Philip Lord says, Horror of Dracula. This time it's personal. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where I was thinking uh, it might be going. But no, no, it seemed, if anything, it seemed to be like a cause that he was, um, that he was on, right? Um, it, did, it seemed to be actually, it turns out, I get to hear him talk about it, wasn't really personal. Um, uh, that is to say, it doesn't seem at all clear that Jonathan Harker ever had a personal grudge against Dracula. It's just Dracula was evil, had a reign of terror going on that needed to become brought to an end. And by golly, Jonathan Harker was the librarian for the job, right? Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah, um, Tom, you're right. We never learn how Harker and Van Helsing find out about him. Um, other than the general sense that, like, they and others, I guess, are, like, in this, like, vampire, like, the the society of, like, vampire scholars, right? Um, and it's, that's, you know, so both of them, Van Helsing and John Har- Jonathan Harker, apparently are eminent scholars, right, uh, within that... Um, that context nick has a good point nick marazzo says it looks like he he doesn't look down on peasant peasant superstitions you're right and you'll notice nick we didn't get that right jonathan's story begins with him being right after he's been dropped off by the peasants and he seems comparatively good-natured about that right he doesn't speak scathingly of the peasants who dropped him off um we do learn after the fact that um uh the peasants we're not super happy to see him. The peasants are very resistant. I mean, it's like it goes the other way, right? The peasants are in the know and they're generous uh, and kind and concerned towards Jonathan in the book. In the film, they're resistant and kind of hostile, especially to Van Helsing, right? Um, uh, But... um, um, so it's kind of it's not exactly. I was about to say it's flipped around, but it isn't exactly flipped around, right? Um, because the dynamic is not exactly the same. Um, we do still get a divide between the the sort of the peasants and the I don't know even what to call them non peasants, not exactly aristocrats. Um, the reason I'm struggling for a term to use to describe like this set that includes Van Helsing, Jonathan, and Arthur in this. And you know, Mina and Lucy, uh, in this film, is that we do not get in the film as we did in the book a clear division either of culture, or of distance, or of time. Almost right in the book, you had the East and the West. Right? Remember, in the, like one of the very first things we get in Jonathan's first journal entry is he he very much got the impression that he was leaving uh, that he was leaving the West and entering the East. Remember that? He, it's, this is a cultural, a major cultural shift. I don't know how far, uh, uh, what was it again? Um, uh, Klausenberg is from Ingstadt, but, or Karlstadt? Karlstadt, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, it's called a long journey, 
It doesn't seem like a real long journey. It's a long journey, but it's apparently a long journey. You can make it a gallop in a couple hours, right? Um, they both seem to be vaguely in Germany-ish, right? Uh, somewhere like that. Um, Austria, maybe? Yeah, Joyce, I, I don't really know. Um but yeah, there's no, uh, there's no, there is a border, Philip. You're absolutely right. There, there is a border, uh, uh, heavily guarded. Okay, not heavily guarded border. Um, there's a turnpike anyway. Uh, but you're, there's no sea journey, right? Um, so the distance is is dramatically shrunk. The the which means there's no real gap in culture, right? Um, Castle Dracula is basically in the same culture, and the, therefore. Castle Dracula and the neighboring peasants thereof are essentially the same culture as the bourgeois that was uh, suggested by uh, who was suggesting that Ian um, Blaylock was suggesting that maybe I could I could accept that uh, Ingolstadt yeah thanks um, no I think it was I think it was Ingolstadt I'm not sure Tom um, anyway yeah so but again the point is. We don't have that. We, we, there's no east versus west, certainly, right? We don't even get the distance of a, an ocean, or, you know, or any kind of sea in between. Um, we don't have that, uh, you know, the way the, all, the whole modernity versus the older world, right? The peasants themselves are clearly, uh, you know, sort of a, a remnant of the more ancient world. Even even the way that. Um, you know, when he think about how the the trains deteriorate, right? As he goes uh, into the east, um, you know, he's leaving the sort of more advanced and modern culture behind, and this is why, of course, he has such a such a superior, um, you know, sort of viewpoint to everybody else around uh, him. Jonathan, of course, I mean, in the beginning of the book, um, we don't get that, right? Uh, Van Helsing. Remember how Van Helsing, he knows more than the peasants, or maybe he doesn't know more than the peasants, right? He kind of assumes the peasants actually know too, right? I mean, he's sitting there, he's like, I notice you have all this garlic hanging around here, right? That's probably not for no reason, right? So he's actually trying to make a connection. He's the one who's like, I'm in the know, you're in the know too. And the peasants are like, oh, we have no idea what you're talking about. You'd better just leave. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, and Tom, I have no idea what all of these, what are all these Brits doing in Germany? I have no idea. The German thing kind of blew my mind. Uh, I mean, we have the, the, the consequences of that choice, as I described before, mean um, we, we, we remove several elements from the story, right? Several of the thematic elements are just taken out. Um, the, the East versus West thing, the modernity versus the old world thing, that's also taken out. We have the fact that time has passed. Van Helsing says that, oh yeah, Dracula was probably 500 years old, but at no point in the story do we get a like you know, older world versus modern world uh, kind of dichotomy uh, going there. Um, the whole thing is kind of in the, you know, in the in the same general area, in the same kind of backyard. Um, so that certainly changes. Certainly changes the situation. It makes the whole thing much more kind of parochial, right? I mean, because of the travel and the whole East versus West thing, you not only get the contrasts between the two things, but there is more of a sense of like a 
a sort of a of a global threat, right? Something reaching out from across the sea from this foreign land and coming and invading England. Um, whereas here, it's like this is a local issue, right? You've got Van Helsing and, and, and Harker, and they're working on uh, handling what is clearly, in a sense, a local problem. Um, but, um, yeah. No, Mick, we actually learn where the Karlstadt is the name of the, of the city that they're in. Um, remember when they go to track where the coffin ended up? And it's Karlstadt is, I think, what the name of it is. Um, I might be getting that wrong. But anyway, it, that's the town that they live in. They go back and that's where, like, you know, Mina gets called out by that incredibly cunning message um, uh, to meet with Arthur uh, at the Undertaker's there. Talk about your, like, really convincing messages, right? I mean, you know... Uh, Anana, you know, hi, I'm a stranger delivering a message from your husband who says, meet me at midnight <laughs> at the Undertaker's warehouse. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's a little unusual, but I guess I'll go, right? Because uh, I guess, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, I think that uh, I guess her husband makes assignations with her. In the, I mean, I don't even know. It's very strange, right? That, that, that she would be duped. <laughs> Sounds legit, says Nancy Fosberg. Exactly. Exactly. Um, anyway, okay. So we can begin to sort of see some ways in which this is clearly a different thing. Also notice, I mean, one thing that I was thinking about, let me go back to Jonathan here at the beginning. Look at Jonathan's face. I mean, just the casting of Jonathan, I thought, was really kind of interesting here, too. He's much older, right? He's a very young man. Um, you know, he's all, like, sort of seamed and weathered. He's just, it's, it's you know, he's, this, this, is, this is not an old man, but this is a man that's been through a bit, right? Not a young, you know, uh, fresh-faced Clark hoping for his first big break in his new career, right? Um so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nancy really liked the kid who delivered the message. Nancy, my main question was, like, did Dracula hire, like, did he suborn a castrati to deliver that message? The vocal register of the kid, deli- he looked about 17 or something. He was this huge kid. and But he was like, I really weird, high-pitched voice. I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get the voice at all. I'm like, that ah, was just weird. Anyway, okay, sorry, but moving on. One more, uh, one more, not Jonathan one. I get thinking back about the uh, what's going on and how can we contextualize this. This is Van Helsing talking about his own expertise. This is immediately after the staking of Lucy. And of course, we begin, uh, as is only appropriate, with uh, the uh, delivery of a glass of brandy. Drink this. I'm all right now. Drink it. No, you, dude, you need some brandy, please. Besides, we're not in England. No stiff upper, no stiff so upper lip here. Jonathan's diary I don't understand. Can Dracula really be as old as it says here? We believe it's possible. Vampires are known to have gone on from century to century. Vampires are known. Dracula could be five or six hundred years old. Notice that sentence? Vampires are known to... Really? I always understood that if there were such things, they could change themselves into bats or wolves. Yeah, I did too. That's a common fantasy. Fantasy. Homer, the study of these creatures has been my life's work. Life's I carried work? out research with some of the greatest authorities in Europe, and yet we've only just scratched the surface. 
You see, a great deal is known about the... Wait, wait, what? Okay. Van Helsing, that was a staggering sentence. Can you deliver that sentence again? Homewood. Yeah. The study of these creatures has been my life's work. Life's work. I've carried out research with some of the greatest authorities in Europe, and yet greatest. we've only just scratched the surface. I carried out research with some of the greatest authorities in Europe, yet we've only just scratched the surface. You, you, you get that, right? See, see the implications of all the, those parts of that sentence? It's not just that vampires are known, right? In the book, Van Helsing recognizes that everybody else would think he's a git, right? He's like, every, no one, none of his colleagues would take him seriously. Everyone is going to think he's a complete moron. Um, you know, he's like, uh, uh, remember, uh, you know, Dr. Seward being like, oh, Van Helsing, it's fortunate we have no skeptic here. Or they might think you were trying to work a magic spell, right? And he's like, maybe I am, right? With this kind of, uh, there's, there's always this kind of uh, self-awareness in Van Helsing, right? That he knows that people are going to think that he's crazy, but he's fine. You know, he knows... Um, he knows what's what, right? Uh, and he's confident in his open-mindedness, and he recognizes that most of the other people are closed-minded. It's all good. But he's alone, right? And his, it's only the unusual open-mindedness of Van Helsing in the book that leads him to even entertain this crazy possibility. Here, it's not just that vampires are well-known. There is a network of... European mind, not like this is not just like oh this is what those wild and crazy scholars out there and you know in uh, in Transylvania get up to no 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 in like major <laughs> Eastern centers you know major European rather centers of learning there's like uh, this whole field apparently like the the vampire scholars must have like annual conferences and Van Helsing's been giving papers and um uh. uh that's kind of amazing, right? And he and Jonathan were apparently colleagues, right? Um, and he has made it his life's work. So Van Helsing, his reputation, in as much as he has a reputation, is not as a, you know, not as a, 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 a psychologist, not as a neurologist, um, not as a surgeon, uh, but as a vampire Researcher, yeah, exactly, Gerald. Yeah. Yes, there's, there's like the chair of, uh, for vampire studies at Oxford, Gerald. That's exactly, that's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, of course, it's possible to interpret this as being like you have to know the secret handshake, right? That we don't actually invite the public to our conferences uh, and everything. Uh, you know, it's like a clandestine effort. That's conceivable, um, but uh, but still. You know the the fact that it's totally in that sense kind of uh, uh, kind of kind of mainstream. Yeah, vamp moot, Rickle. I agree. Yeah, that's doubtless what they have. They have vamp moot. Um, uh, nothing nothing could be more likely. Okay. See, a great deal is known about the vampire bat, but details yeah. of these reanimated bodies of the dead, the undead as we call them, are so obscure that many biologists will not believe they exist. Much is known about the vampire bat. However, these reanimated corpses are, you know, most people don't know about them. Okay. Um, it doesn't exactly seem like an apples to apples thing. Um, like most biologists, are biologists the people that would be studying? I mean, let's assume that vampires existed, right? And that's, I mean, I guess biologists would be interested in, in theory. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Tom Hillman points out that the chair of vampire studies at Oxford would obviously have been in doubt at All Souls College. Uh, clearly, I absolutely agree. Um, okay, all right. Uh, so, but but I'm not just wanting to. I'm not just laughing at Van Helsing here for talking about biologists. You see the significance, right? By sort of starting that sentence, talking about vampire bats, and ending it talking about biologists and sort of the resistance of biologists to study this really quite fascinating biological phenomenon, which is the uh, which which we call the undead, does sort of place it in a scientific framework, right? Van Helsing. When he's talking about his life's work, he doesn't mean like, now that I have revealed the fact that my li- I've dedicated my life's work to being like a crackpot. Like, basically, he's, he's not revealing himself as somebody who wears a tinfoil hat here, I think is what we're supposed to be taking from that next, that sentence in this speech, right? Um, he's not like, yes, in fact, Arthur, you didn't know this about me or about Jonathan, but we have, uh, we also have joined the, Satchqua- the Sa- Sasquatch Club, right, and have been hunting Bigfoot and we spend a lot of time trolling uh, for Nessie. That's not what he's saying here at all. Um, this is a perhaps uh, uh, lesser known, right, perhaps not uh, wildly publicized and yet perfectly legitimate branch of scientific research that he has been um, uh, he has been he has been undertaking um, so uh, yeah okay um, yeah interesting Joyce is thinking about the historical context 1958 right so thinking about you know the Cold War and the nuclear scare and and uh, you know the, and she's saying yeah you know we feel safer thinking there's a center that studies you know these monsters and knows how to cope um, so yes this idea of okay there's something really freaky going on but fortunately there's a scientific expert at hand right who can uh, who, who who can explain it exp- and, not, and, and notice Joyce not just who knows what to do Right, who's able to sort of step in and intervene, right? As he does literally step in between and intervene with the crucifix, right? But it's not just that. It's I can explain that this is a you know this is a this is a it's this is not the unknown, right? This is not the un the merely uncanny that we're dealing with. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, Margaret. Uh, Joyce points out that working with able-bodied vampires is clearly against work- workplace safety policy. I agree. Uh, anyway, for laboratory experiments, that would be that would be very challenging. But anyway, I'm sorry, Van Helsing. I keep interrupting you. Of course, you're shocked and bewildered. Yeah. How can you expect yeah. to understand it so? Sh- <laughs> Actually, that's kind of my theme of the entire film. Of course, you're shocked and bewildered. Um, in fact, maybe shocked and bewildered will be my title for this class. Time. But you've read and experienced enough to know that this unholy cult must be wiped out. Unholy cult? I hope perhaps that you'll help me. I'll do anything you say. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry, am am I the only one who finds the body language of (laughs) Van Helsing during this sequence kind of entertaining? I hope perhaps that you'll help me. I'll do anything you say. Thank you. A little twitch of the shoulder. It's like I set on my jacket on my shoulder. Thank you. I don't know. Sorry. I. 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 I, I. Anyway, never mind. Okay. So, uh, I've totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Completely distracted by his, uh, um, 
but okay, so he's he's he's. I hope that you will. Uh, uh, back to putting on our jacket. Oh, right. I remember what I was going to say. Unholy oh. cult. Yeah. The study of these creatures has been my life's work. Oh yeah, I don't want to go back that far. Um, unholy cult, right? Yes, this unholy cult. What a fascinating phrase that is in the middle of things. Because um, notice that uh, um, maybe I like the jacket putting on scene so much just because it reminds me of childhood memories of Mr. Rogers. But anyway... Um, Notice the combination of the whole sort of scientific atmosphere, especially around Van Helsing, as well as the persistent spiritual uh, uh, language and Christian symbols, which return and return with much more force. We've seen them creeping back, right? They were gone. They were sucked completely out of Nosferatu. Not a sing- other than the plague marks on the doors, not a single Christian uh, piece of Christian iconography or bit of of. Of, uh, of of Christian spiritual connection in that entire film. And then we get, um, in the Bela Lugosi version, right, the return of the crucifix, though as I, I was a little bit dissatisfied by that because there was it was, you know, used as a symbol and yet that symbol, like the force of that symbol wasn't really explained. Like what exact role does the whole crucifix thing play? Other than it's like it's like, you know, there's Wolfbane, I've got Wolfbane in one pocket, but I've got the crucifix in the other pocket and Van Helsing is quick on the draw and it's it's not really dealt with in a way that I found satisfying here, much more so. Right? And we'll look at that uh in a few minutes a little bit more, but um but it's not just that the crucifix come back in and gets talked about a little bit more. It plays a much bigger role in the story. And we get those dialogue moments of like the, you know, they don't exactly say we're in the hands of God, but they actually say things like that uh, much more often. So the, 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 the way in which this film combines the sort of scientific naturalistic view of, um, or something like the naturalistic view of Nosferatu with uh, more of the Christian language from the book, I find really interesting. Um, and I thought it was well you guys will have to we'll have to take a look at I think it's a crucifix and not a cross Nick we almost always see it from behind which is actually really interesting um, but I we'll, 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 we'll take a look later on and see if we uh, see if we notice but I think I think it's a, I think it's a crucifix not a cross but uh, I could be I could be wrong anyway okay um, let's look at a few other changes so first we have this big huge major thing the Jonathan Harker as uh, librarian by day vampire scholar slash exterminator by night um, other changes which seem like more minor changes but which I'm trying to understand especially in the context of that fact So a vampire woman makes her appearance, or at least a female, let's not make assumptions, a woman makes her appearance in Dracula's castle. But is she a vampire woman? And if so, is she voluptuous? That's really, I think, the question that should be on everyone's mind. I'm going with yes. um, Right? It's not just me, right? This is... This particular sartorial choice 
says voluptuous to me, right? But maybe it's just me. Jonathan, what do you think? Okay, it's not just me. All right, good. I didn't think so. Um, uh, so, okay. Um, yeah, no, you're right, Joyce. We don't get the... Um, the ethereal image from the 1931 exactly that that image and that's again what, one of the reasons I went back to that image when we were doing the the Bella Lugosi film I went back to it at the beginning the the crypt stuff in the middle with like the women rising from the from the coffins and just kind of standing in strange ways and walking around right nothing like that this is a normal human interaction right she's a little forward right but appears to be in distress and you know i can understand that. tom you're so right oh my goodness see tom i i, I had this kind of this kind of <laughs> i had this kind of sinking feeling like this like nagging feeling I'm like she reminds me of something but i can't place it that's totally it tom hillman says she's escaped from jason and the argonauts your ass she looks exactly like medea in jason and the argonauts oh my goodness uh when you see her running off around the corner she absolutely looks like a like a like a, a greek lady um uh anyway okay well, well. <laughs> next one next one uh we'll get we'll, we'll get more of uh of medea in the pink dress here uh oh but see you can already tell that the woman is bad news right how can you tell that the woman is bad news the bassoon uh-huh uh-huh ominous bassoon music is a dead giveaway i love the boar heads and the boar spears right that's very that's very nice by the way it's my i my theory is that this film contains many homages back to nosferatu i think this is a film that's very conscious of nosferatu um, and personally, that's my explanation of the whole weird German thing, right? Why this is placed in a German context, even though none of the characters are even vaguely German. The peasants look a little German in their dress. Like, they're, they're, the, the peasant costumes are slightly German. But not, none, nothing else is German. And as, you know, Tom, as you said, it gives that, that, that exact impression. What are these Brits doing in, in Germany is precisely what it, what it kind of looks like. Anyway... I think the whole German thing is seems to me I, my the only theory I have to explain that is that it's an homage, and there are certain visual touches as well. This is one of them. He walks in, and at first it looks like the door begins to close itself, right? Just like in Nosferatu, when remember when he left Jonathan's room and the door closes itself behind him. Right. Of course, it turns out that she's standing behind the door, and that's why it's closing itself. But that visual impression at first uh, very much reminded me of that moment. Mr. Hockey, you will help me. If it's at all possible. But tell me, why is Count Dracula keeping you prisoner? I... I cannot tell you that. But if I'm to help you, I am What an insensitive question. Oh. I'm sorry. It's not possible. You make it very difficult for me. After all, I'm a guest here. If I'm to help you, I must have a reason. A reason? 
It was for a reason. Is it not reason enough that he keeps me locked up in this house? Holds me against my will? You can have no idea what an evil man he is. What terrible things he does. See, this is one of those moments that looks really different in retrospect, right? Remember that big reveal of, like, you know, in his reign of terror. Um, the end of... No, wait, that did happen. That did happen. The end of his reign of terror has happened. Uh, yeah, 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 no, that did happen. Okay, so we know that he knows who Dracula is. So when she's like, you can have no idea, we're like, yeah, he does, right? Jonathan, are you kidding? Jonathan has, like, a European reputation uh, for his... Um, his 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 vampire slaying things. Tony, that was my thought too. Tony says they're touching on the mind control thing. I was immediately thinking the same thing. Maybe. Maybe. Um uh I Well, we'll come to that. I'm a little unclear about that actually. What how, what exactly we were supposed to take from this. But in any case, Surely he must be a bit on the suspicious side? I could not. Dare not try to leave on my own. Question for you guys. What's up with the globe? Right? I mean, you know, movie makers don't choose these kinds of props randomly as a rule, right? Why a ginormous globe as the centerpiece of this scene uh, uh, not just like in the background of this scene, right? But like the characters actually speaking to each other from either side of the globe, which is particularly ironic given, as I was saying, that there's, um, uh, uh, it's, it's all exactly Arthur, the, the fact that there's no globe crossing, right? There's no globe, there's no, you know, the vampire and Jonathan standing on either side of the globe might have worked as a symbol. Right in the book, it doesn't work as a symbol here. Um, I, I I don't uh, I don't really get it. Margaret Joyce says classy villains always have globes. Uh, I can uh, um, okay. I, I I mean I got nothing better because um, it just it doesn't really seem to fit. Um, there is perhaps maybe some uh, um, who as you know Michael. Ch- Jaskowski was wondering if, you know, some kind of hint at, you know, like the larger threat or like the larger global threat, maybe. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. He would find me again, I know. But with you to help me, I would have a chance. He'd find you or a replacement. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. Okay, now, is it your opinion that, like, is Jonathan Harker driving the bus here? Are we supposed to be understanding? Is she exerting some kind of fascination or mental control on him? Um, See, it's hard for me to read that. Because, of course, I'm ready for that from, you know, from the book, right? With the parallel scene from the book, I'm I'm sort of half expecting him to get somehow mesmerized by her. Um, Her actions don't seem particularly mesmerizing, right? There's not the kind of intensity we don't... There's no, like, close-up of her kind of, like, with a flashlight shining on her eyes and, 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 and like, a, a look of constipation on her face. We don't get that, so I'm not getting the cue, the cue, which I've come to expect, for I am exerting mental control. But even barring that, um, she's making, like, a straightforward 
I am deceiving you and making an emotional appeal by which I'm trying to sucker you. Right? In other words, like a normal person would um, when trying to deceive you. Not like I am exerting super vampire force upon you. And yet his reaction, his, 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 his affect is really flat um, throughout this whole scene. So it's like conceivable um, and yeah, I mean, I agree. Several of you are saying that this is, um, uh, th- this is, this is, you know, she seems to be sort of playing on, you know, trying to control him or manipulate him with, with her feminine wiles. Several of you don't think that he's, uh, that he's being suckered by her. It is possible, of course, to, you know, when he says like, and he promises to help her. He might be thinking all along, right? Yeah, I'm going to help you, lady, with a stick through the heart or vaguely heart-like region. <clears throat> but if so, if he's on to her... Please don't distress yourself. What's he doing with his hand right there? I mean, I'm asking, right? It's not that I think he's doing anything wildly inappropriate. It's just like, is he, like, feeling the temperature of her skin, right? Vampires have cold skin. We know that testimony from... Tan, Tanya, the girl, later on, <clears throat> uh, when she's walking out or out with the bluefer lady, um, is he feeling the temperature of her skin? Is he feeling? Is he trying to get a pulse uh, with his thumb there? I, I, I'm trying to. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. Like it seems like there are several perfectly legitimate motivations he could have um, there. This was obviously a tactical error on Jonathan's part, whatever his plan was. Okay. Um... We have the, uh, sorry, the the music, the modulations in volume in this film are so dramatic. I, I hope, let me know if I'm blasting your eardrums out with the levels of the, of the film clips. Because sometimes to catch the dialogue, I have to turn it up pretty loud. But then all of a sudden it's like deadly. Anyhow, sorry. Um, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I love Nancy's commentary. Nancy's commentary on this moment is, hey, how am I supposed to get those books cataloged now? It's ironic, especially, Nancy. This is the library. And look at this. There's books sitting all over the table. And they're still there in the last scene, right? Just stacks of random books waiting to be cataloged, never to be cataloged because the poor librarian's work was undone. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, like Jonathan was unwise, at least, uh, if not actively fooled. And by the way, this look, I love this look. I love this look almost as much as, you know, this almost as much as I love the, uh, the sort of jaunty look of, uh, uh, you know, posture of Van Helsing in the Bela Lugosi when he's doing his like quick draw with the crucifix position, um, 
it's uh, this is uh, this is this is wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I I agree, Tom. We're going for the basilisk glare here. We we got the red eyes, right, which don't exactly glow in this film, but they do get all bloodshot, right, and uh, and red looking. And but but notice again in a more naturalistic way. They don't shine in the dark, which is unnatural. But they uh, they do get red, but they get red in like a scientifically explicable way in as much as The Walking Dead are scientifically explicable. Um, uh, okay, anyway. Um, so, but notice where the woman ends up here, right? The the vampire woman is, you know, she, in, in full bestial mode, right? Snarling with her teeth and she licks her lips. And uh, so that uh, that sort of contrast between sort of feminine softness and winsomeness that uh, juxtaposed with uh, sort of bestial fury and, uh, uh, and, and sensuality. Again, that's from the book, right? Um, even though she's a brunette, which is not from the book, but that's okay, right? We're fine. There's one, only one instead of three, but again, that's okay. Um, I have no idea what Jonathan was uh, was was up to there. Where does Jonathan get in the end? Uh, here for this, I combined two different scenes here. He's just staked the woman, right, as he made the tactical error, the same tactical error that Van Helsing almost made at the, Bella, at the end of the Bela Lugosi film, although then Van Helsing had all the time in the world, right? But anyway, he staked the woman first and Dracula second and ran out of time and the sun set and now he's looking into Dracula's empty tomb. First of all, um, I love how Dracula gets out of his tomb and then leaves to come back in in order to make a dramatic entrance, a dramatic re-entrance into the tomb. Uh, I thought that was particularly well done on Dracula's part. But the second thing, uh, this is one of the places where I think we can see echoes uh, to Nosferatu. Um, one obviously sort of noteworthy element of this film is how little Dracula talks, right? Especially conspicuous, of course. Many of you here have been following these classes in my podcast for a long time. Ergo, many of you in this class are Tolkien fans. And so Christopher Lee, of course, resonates in particular ways with you and in particular his voice. And so it's kind of ironic to see a film in which Christopher Lee is starring and yet never speaking, right? Because he's got a really nice voice. Um, Anyway, he doesn't talk. Why doesn't he talk? I think it's a Nosferatu reference. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing we see Dracula doing for most of the film. We see his shadow coming and descending the stairs, just like we saw the shadow of Nosferatu, right? It, you know, he doesn't have, like, the huge creepy claws, right? He's not going like... <sighs> like Nosferatu does. But we see his shadow descending the stairs, 
And then, you know, his silhouette in the door, standing there, looking creepy and silent. And then we cut to black. I love the cutting to black there. Um... <laughs> You're right, Jordan. I did miss the bong <laughs> when we went over to it, but that wasn't a bong moment anyway. Uh, that wouldn't wouldn't have been the wouldn't wouldn't have been the perfect uh, the perfect moment. Now, second part. It's Jonathan's. It's the smallest sledgehammer ever. Jonathan's sledgehammer is really adorable. I'm sorry, Mr. Helmut, but I really cannot tell you anything more about how he died. I love that cut. <laughs> I cannot tell you anything more about how he died. Um, I'm assuming... I'm assuming that uh, uh, he staked Jonathan. Like, when I was watching this for... I mean, but see, especially with that cut, it's very suggestive, right? But I was... um, I was totally ready for Jonathan to come back. Like, I'm like, okay, he did not die on screen. I didn't see any silhouette of anybody pounding a hammer. Uh, If Jonathan... If vampire Jonathan Harker shows up later on, I was going to be in the least bit surprised. Now he doesn't. Pretty sure that um, uh, that we are, are, you know, that we're fine with Jonathan being actually dead. Um, okay, so so the story of Jonathan Harker, he's undone by the woman. Why was he undone by the woman? How? It's like it, he wasn't... Again, because of the way his story has been changed, um, the woman's story has changed. She's appealing to him, right? You must protect me. You must take me away. Won't you please uh, rescue me from the horrible man? Um, very different, of course, from the approach of the vampire women in the book, right? Which pure sensuality, pure indulgence. We, are, we claim him for, you know, come, there are kisses for us all totally different kind of context right it's it's this outright appeal to his sort of chivalry and 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 protectiveness and aren't i winsome and vulnerable while she's just getting inside his guard in order to bite his neck so if he agrees to like shield and protect her right by embracing her as he did then she within his defenses can bite him there's a kind of warping of you know his own sort of noble desire to protect the damsel in distress um but it's not really a warping it doesn't work in the same way we don't see that same kind of perversion of love thing going on um, even that we get in the vampire women with Jonathan and the kisses, right? Um, and his own thoughts about his own fiance and everything else, right? Um, we don't get we don't get that same kind of thing. She's manipulating that as a tool, but it is not her own appeal. Is not um, it's not the same. It's just it's it's an act, and that seems to me a very important difference. Like when um, when 
when Lucy appeals to Arthur in the book, you know, when she says, um, come to me, Arthur, leave these others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come, my husband, come. She is not manipulating. I mean, she is manipulating. She's not just, she's not lying, right? She's not acting. She's completely sincere in what she's saying. It's warped, it's twisted, it's predatory, but it's not a lie in this. It's not an act. See what I mean? Um, in my mind, it's very what she's doing is very different in how she gets to him. I still don't quite get it. I mean, I can only kind of conclude that he's a little dumb, um, or at least foolish and overconfident. Um, but anyway, um, so okay, so that doesn't seem to be operating in quite in quite the same way. Um, uh, yeah, and Tom, you're right. The uh, this 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 the silhouette of the vampire killer with the hammer balances the shadow of of Nosferatu. Um, yes, yeah, the shadow thing. I think again, every time we see the shadow, that that kind of shadow motif uh, in this film, that seems to me. I mean, I I see a reference to Nosferatu. That's such a prominent moment um, in that film. Um, I better step up my pace a little bit. Okay. Victims, I need your help with this. So help me understand what this film is doing with vampire victims. And this is where I want to come back to the mind control question. Okay, here's what Van Helsing has to say about it. Love that phonograph. Established that victims consciously detest being dominated by vampirism. Consciously detest. are unable to relinquish the practice. Relinquish the practice. addiction to drugs. <laughs> Ultimately, death results from loss of blood. But unlike normal death, no peace manifests itself, for they enter into the fearful state of the undead. No 12-step program here. Um, uh, you know, hi, my name is Lucy. Um, yeah, no. Uh, um, okay, so they consciously detest, but they're unable to relinquish the practice. <laughs> that phrase cracks me up. It's really, I shouldn't. No, no, no. I really. Well, maybe just one more, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't. Yeah, just say no to vampirism, Carolyn. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Mick, I have no idea what that thing in the background is. <laughs> is. Is that an oval-faced set of Chinese drawers or a turret? I mean, it's clearly crenellated. Um, I have absolutely no clue what that thing is. Um, uh, it's a Dalek, says Tom. That's that seems that seems very that seems very likely. Anyway, okay, okay. Uh, so, consciously detest, but they cannot bring themselves to relinquish the practice, like, uh, as in the case of the addiction to drugs, okay? Um, so, this sort of internal conflict, I kind of want to stop, and yet I can't help myself, that's how Van Helsing contextualizes us. Now, remember, this scene with Van Helsing and his phonograph interrupts the first scene of Lucy's victimization, okay? 
Um, like it's Lucy, the Lucy scene starts before, and then we cut to Van Helsing, and then it goes back after. Okay, and Yana, you're right. The implication is that the person is still there. I would say, Yana, furthermore, the implication is not that they are under mind control. They're not being controlled. Their actions are not being controlled. Again, if it's like addiction to drugs, then like yes, the person there is there is a compulsion. There's like a chemical, but again, it's not like. You know, remember Mina holding the invisible tray, right? And like walking when Dracula told her to walk and stopping when... We don't get that, right? We don't get like, remember the usher in the symphony being like, yes, I will I will obey, right? We don't... It's, it's That kind of mind control doesn't seem to be in the picture, right? So let's turn from Van Helsing's edifying lecture to actual examples. And you guys can help me figure out if he's right. What are we actually getting when we see the scene? So this is the scene that, uh, this is both halves of the scene that frame uh, Van Helsing's little mini lecture there. Sleep well. I'll try. Night, Mom and Dad. I'll try a significant thing. Will she? That's my question. How much is she going to try? Look at her face. That's a mischievous look. Wasn't that a mischievous look right there? Like... Not like, yes, master. I come, master. She goes to the door and listens. Right? Are they still? Are they out there? Am I? Am I in the clear? Yes, she looks like she's up to no good, Ian. Yes, it is a sneaky look, Mick. I, that's exactly what I. Th- she opens the, just like me. What is she? What was that thing with the? Oh, okay. She stepped up the step. I just saw her pull out her nightgown there, and I'm like, what the heck was that? I missed the step. Okay, right. Got it. And she opens the door. Now she comes back. Look at her face. Okay, on the one hand, her eyes are all, like, kind of fixed, right? Which, so it's, like, vaguely trance-like here. Like, there. Here, especially, right? Here. Here, she's like, she, there's, a, there, there's a little bit of, yes, I come, master, right, in her affect here. But then watch this. Watch this. Right there. And here. That kind of, like, half smile. Right there. Right there. Right? Like, I... This is, do you see what I mean? I'm wondering how complicit she is. She is acting not like a slave who is acting under compulsion. She is acting like a teenage girl who's about to elope or like let her skeevy boyfriend in through the back door, right? That her that her parents don't approve of. Um, I, she takes off the cross, significant. Again, do you see that? It's her facial expressions that I'm more interested than anything else, right? She puts the cross in the drawer. That look over her shoulder. Anybody looking? Huh? Am I in the clear? Like Lucy in the book in a trance doesn't act like that, right? Even when Mina's in the room watching her in the book, 
she goes about her actions like you know she acts like she's thwarted and everything but she doesn't she's completely unselfconscious while in trance right and then look at that there's that little half smile again right that little like all right right like I don't know how to characterize it, like, it, it, but there's like at least a smattering of like I aim to misbehave in her expressions here, and then she's gonna like I shall arrange myself fetchingly upon the bed, ah, right? Okay. Now we get an expression of pain. And this is where the, we get the reveal of the bite, right? Up to now, we just learned that she was sick. Indeed, that was introduced a little bit clumsily. The very first time we got that scene with, uh, you know, the like, and that's all I can tell you about Jonathan Harker's death scene. Uh, when we first met Arthur and Mina, and I'm like totally confused as to who's related to whom and what on, on earth is going on here. Um, uh, they end that scene with Mina saying like, uh, uh, Lucy has to go down for her afternoon rest. And I'm like, what is she, two? Like, it's her nap time? She, Lucy still has nap time? But of course, because they didn't mention that she was sick. Uh, but anyway, so now we get the reveal of the marks on her neck, which is an, a, an interesting reveal, right? Think about the, she's opened the window and removed the cross, and that's when we see the bites, right? So that all seems to fit uh, together. Now she seems like she's in pain. <laughs> And unhappy. But that moment right there, there, is the first time that she has looked unhappy or afraid or in pain. Um, Before this, she's looked sneaky and mischievous or maybe, you know, mesmerized at best. Now she looks, now she looks worried. Okay. Now we're building up to the cut to Van Helsing. He must be found and destroyed. Okay, so that that's so 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 we cut to Van Helsing. I cut out Van Helsing's whole talk. Um, so from there we get Van Helsing and his phonograph. This is the end of the phonograph scene, and then the cut back. He must be found and destroyed. Okay, look at her face. Watch her face. She sits up. He's calling to her. Was that, I want you to invite me in? Like, I'm trying to interpret the like, mental conversation that was just happening here because we get no lines because he doesn't talk. Was that the, like, you must invite me in? And her lifting her head up, was that like, yes, come in? Like, I, maybe? I'm kind of, that's what I'm thinking, but I don't really know. Her face again. She's clearly creeped out now. Okay, so at the end, she was clearly not into that. I, I right. Um. <laughs> yeah, Tom says, uh, if she's like an alcoholic on the brink of a binge, 
there could be both excitement and dread, depending on how far gone she knows she is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Arthur says she forgot the safe word. Um, yeah, I, I don't... Um, okay, yeah, so uh, both Arthur and Nancy were talking about the light across his eyes, right? And, uh, you know, that that seems clearly to be a reference, this right there, to Lugosi, right? Which I agree. That that shot is obviously a reference to Bella Lugosi, just as the shadow, you know, the shadow coming down the stairs is a reference to Nosferatu. Um, but you'll notice the difference, right? In Bella Lugosi, the implication is that his eyes are glowing. I mean, I think that's clearly what we're supposed to be getting from that. Um, this is just sort of a trick of the light, right? Um, and because you can tell, because it doesn't stick around. Uh, when he comes in and he looks at her here, see, Bella Lugosi's eyes would still be glowing here, right? Uh, his are not. Uh, indeed, they're going into shadow, and we have his shadow sweeping over her as he comes down for an awkward hug, though less awkward than Bella Lugosi's hug, and then whoosh, darkness. I love the cape. The cape is just fantastic. Um, Christopher Lee has the uh, um, has the best cape. Um, yeah, James Stevens thinks that her look here fits with the book's description of being repelled and and compelled at the same time, right? That that like desire but simultaneous repulsion that Jonathan describes uh, so clearly, and even Mina indicates later on. Um, I do. That does seem it. I mean, I'm, I'm totally willing to buy that with Lucy. Um, the question of the engagement of her own will is still a little bit unclear to me. Um, but that kind of seems to be the thing. Look, here's uh, Lucy's... This is the, the Lucy's next and sort of final scene right before her death. Uh, this is Gerda removing the garlic flowers. I love the I'll urns. There's had all those urns sitting around waiting for garlic flowers. I wish I had that many urns. Okay, that's not a happy face. That's not mischievous. Alright, right. I love the fact that they don't even show him, right? Just the shadow. Uh, enveloping the moon. I think that's a really effective cut there. She's afraid and upset. Now we saw her begging, right? Um, We saw her begging before, and yet now we see her crying and fearful, knowing that he's going to come and fearing and believing that he's going to kill her, um, as indeed he's going to do. Um, Again, the thing that interests me is the question of the engagement of the will. Um, we do not see if I mean I do think we're getting mind you know the evidence of mind control here, but it works differently than we've seen it in other films. What kind of what kind of pattern do you see uh, here? Um, Good morning. This is Mina, of course. After Mina's been bitten, this is Mina's first appearance. Uh, when she's just come back from her uh, all-nighter at the Undertaker's. Look at her. Watch her face through this. The coy smiles. Where have you been at this hour of the morning? 
such a lovely day, I got up early and went for a walk in the garden. I didn't expect you back so soon. I'm afraid I've got to go out again. Oh. When will you be back? I can't say for sure. Smug, Nancy. Great word for her we expression. Are you all right? Arthur, darling, don't fuss. Smug, right? That's a smug smile she's got there. Like kind of conspiratorial like I know something you don't know kind of thing not to mention there's uh, like look at her I'm afraid I've got to go out again her lips and the movement of her face and chin here oh. when will you be back? I can't say for sure Mina you look pale no she looks a little voluptuous that just me? Right, uh, you know that that uh, yeah, yeah. And everyone's laughing at how obviously she's hiding her neck. Right, it is a little, it is a little, is a little transparent. Nothing, no, nothing to see here. I always wear a thick fur collar and clutch it with my hand the entire conversation. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. That I mean, did, did, did you see, was it just me? Right? It's a little touch of certainly more voluptuous than she's ever been in this film. Right. And there's the smile. Oh, darling, don't fuss. I feel perfectly well. Goodbye, darling. There it was again. A little touch of... And that smile. And notice when he turns away, how it kind of fades, like, right, right, she's smiling. And then that look. Right? more sort of sinister look at his back and then the smug smile returns as she turns away um again how does being in the grip of the vampire really affect the will of the people involved. This is not like Mina in the book, right? At all. This is not like, uh, I'm still pretty much on your side. They're just like some things I can't talk about anymore, right? Um, my will is not entirely my own. I can't, there's some things I can't do and can't say except at dawn and sunset, right? I don't, I don't see that same thing here. Um, one more on the mental control question, and that's, of course, the evidence of Tanya. Tanya, which, Gerda's daughter? I was totally confused by that. I totally thought that Gerda was the nursemaid and Tanya was Mina and Arthur's daughter, right? Like, she's their daughter and Gerda's the nursemaid. Like, am I alone? Am I the only one who was assuming that? And then later on, they said it was Gerda's daughter? And I'm like, wait, What? So, like, Gerda's the housekeeper and her own daughter lives in the house with them? Uh, like, hanging out with a family and calling Lucy Aunt Lucy? Like, I, 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 I didn't get it. Still don't really get it. But anyway. Tanya's been bitten before. By Aunt Lucy. Somewhere nice and quiet where we can play. 
heard you calling. Yes, dear. Right? Okay, that, this is the most direct evidence that we get in this film that vampires can exert that kind of mental control. Right? That they can summon you from a distance and that you will be compelled to come. Um, though, again, Tanya's not acting as if she's under compulsion. Right? Um, she's just answered because she was called. Um, and, uh, yeah, Nancy, you're absolutely right. The fangs are big in this film. Um, yeah, the fangs are a major thing. And they, they're doing the crazy sink them into your neck thing. The neck wounds are huge, right? And swollen. Um, okay, so the relationship between the vampire and the will of the victims is different and a little bit, well, pretty interesting. What about the powers and weaknesses of the vampire? Let's go back to how... Like, so, like, where are we with vampires in this film? What's going on? Well, let's make sure we... Uh, fortunately, we have an international expert, which we can... Uh, get. We don't have access to the publications of the Society of Vampire Scholars, uh, but, fortunately, one of them is here to spill the beans. Or rather, we get to hear his private r recording as he is... Uh, at first, I thought he was doing, like, um, uh, you know, a correspondence course by audiobook here, but apparently it's his own notes. Allergic. Never ventures forth in the daytime. Right. Sunlight fatal. Sunlight fatal. Fatal allergy. So, upon exposure to sunlight, the vampires go into anaphylactic shock. Got it. I'm totally with you. <clears throat> um, so, everybody, when, um, when, does, when do vampires start being uh, allergic to light? Where does that come in? It's not in the book. Does this film invent it? No. Nosferatu. That's how Nosferatu dies. Right? I mean, yeah. Like, it's the love of the, you know, the woman pure of heart who has to entrap him and, like, the, 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 the rooster gets an assist. But it's about the sun, right? It's keeping him there until after the dawn. And remember, he's standing next to the window, Nosferatu is, and he's like, maybe if I hurry, and then he gets caught in the sunlight, and he's like, oh, no, and is and poof, right? Um, so, okay, so he's, so the sunlight, that's a Nosferatu thing. Um, uh, they don't go out during the day. Why? Because sunlight is deadly to them. Okay, all right, good. Repeat. G got it. Two, Fatal. Destroy. Garlic. garlic. Hey, hey. not Wolfsbane. Repelled by odor of garlic. Memo. Sorry, I skipped a bit when the servant came in and interrupted. Uh, so, light, allergic, deadly, destroys, uh, re repeat, destroys. We get that very firmly. And then garlic, they're repelled by the odor of garlic. And then third, the crucifix. The symbol of the... Let's go back there. Why the crucifix, Van Helsing? The power. Fix. Symbolizing the power of good over evil. 
symbolizing the power of good over evil. Explain more, Van Helsing. So the crucifix is the symbol of the triumph of good over evil. And it protects the normal person and it reveals the vampire or the victim in advanced state of vampire contagion. Again, that medical language being used there. Um, okay, symbol. Yes, Tom, that I agree. That was an important term, right? Um, and yes, we have three weapons against vampires, where in Nosferatu they didn't have any, right? There was they, they had nothing other than the love of Nina alone, um, uh, and we didn't really know how that worked. Um, okay, so the crucifix is a symbol of the triumph of good over evil. Um, so we do get this spiritual element, but it's not exactly a religious element. Does that make any sense? That is, the book is very interested not just in good and evil. The book is very interested in Jesus, particularly, right? And the Jesus and the resurrection and the crucifixion and communion and... Uh, that all, all of that, right? I mean, it was very much interested in these uh, it, it, these elements of Christian theology and the vampirism as the sort of the twisted mockery of those things. We don't get that, right? Notice how little theology we got there. We got good versus evil with the crucifix as the symbol of good versus evil. But the good versus evil is still kind of vague, right? Um, what does the crucifix have with good triumphing over evil? Mm. We don't really go there. And nobody talks about that. Like, nobody talks about, like, Jesus or his sacrifice or salvation or resurrection or any anything like that. It's just good and evil. This film does seem to be interested in good and evil. Um, even when talking about Dracula, the word evil is thrown around a lot. Evil's a big deal. And this, you know, Dracula is evil. That, that, that's the right. He's not dangerous. He's not deadly. I mean, he is dangerous and he is deadly. But that's not what they emphasize, right? Um, he's evil, and must be destroyed. It is a reign of terror, right? Um, uh, I hope you understand what I mean when drawing that distinction between an emphasis on Jesus and an emphasis on good versus evil and how I was calling the latter, like what we're seeing in this film, not spiritual but non-religious. I, 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 mean, I feel like I'm using kind of vague terms to, 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 to describe this. I hope you understand what I mean by that. Uh, Tony Mead says, it's an ecumenical Van Helsing. Yeah, Tony, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's very ecumenical. That might not help you. <laughs> if you're familiar with that term, it might help. Uh, if not, don't worry about it. Um, but okay, all right. So light, sunlight, garlic, and crucifixes. That's very helpful, uh, Van Helsing. Um, what happens when you stake them, though? Is that like in the book? Let's just make sure we, we, we understand the significance like of the symbolism of the staking. 
Here's Jonathan again. The ill-fated trip to the tomb. Okay, you got your stake and hammer right there. Oh no, 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 no. He's over there. That's you really wanna right away with the vampire. Okay, she's cuter, but he's more dangerous. Not that he'd be any less screwed if she woke up while after he staked Dracula, but and the music just stops. Love that. There seems to me a nod to that moment in the book with Van Helsing when Van Helsing destroys the female vampires. Remember how he is like fascinated, right? He describes him standing in fascination, the kind of, you know, staring at her as he's doing. There's there, there's that element, right? No, 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 sorry. Back to business. Must make with the staking and the but she's really quite attractive. Yeah. I think I'm gonna no, no I'm good. Aim for the spleen. That's right. Nosferatu in reverse. There it is, Tom. <laughs> but what happens to her when she's staked? Is there a look of peace on her face? Uh-oh, not on his face. The look of triumph that comes over him when he sees the night coming down, just like in the book, when he almost gets away at the end. Ah. Now it's aged Medea in her Greek dress. Um, okay, so she's apparently not quite as old as the vampire ladies in the book, right? But we see nature returning and she returns to her natural age, right? So we see her uh, withered with eld, right, uh, suddenly. Um, Joyce asks if Dracula is awakened by her screams or by the mental link between them. It's unclear. I mean, that kind of mental link we've seen before. Remember Mina in the Bela Lugosi version, right? With the like, oh, yeah, I am being... Uh, uh, staked by proxy um, it's unclear right I mean it certainly coincides with the scream but um, uh, yeah um, okay so yeah yeah Tony yeah you're right we don't do the beheading I think that would have been a little much uh, okay get on with the job probably already too late it's not looking good for you jonathan um okay so we do see them returning to the sort of the natural order all right um this is lucy of course Arthur Meadows or Arthur Harrow says acting. <laughs> I agree. She, I think she a little overdid it there. I like I like Arthur though. I, 
I'm just pressing myself against the wall. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, good call. Take out your handkerchief and wipe, your, wipe his sister's blood off your hands before you... Yeah, that's good. Come. Let us view the corpse together. She looks kind of like Dorothy when she's lying in her tomb. On the subject of which, am I the only one who felt like Van Helsing looks exactly... I mean, I know he's Peter Cushing, but that he looks exactly like Captain Von Trapp through half of this film. Maybe that's just me. Anyway, um, so we do get the look... Not just the look of peace, but of course the burning from the cross has uh, been miraculously removed from her forehead, right? And now she is quiet and peaceful and no longer fangy, right? Um, Arthur's wondering where the when the seven dwarves are going to arrive. Um, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. That, that, that does seem to be the image that we're going for here, right? Okay. All right, so again, that's... So the, the effect on the victim seems very... Which, why am I interested in this? Um, because, again, it seems to me to be connected with the whole question of what it means to be a victim of the vampire, right? So being released from this torment, I incline towards the reading that the, actually it's kind of doing a subtle job of depicting the torment, really. Um, all those mischievous looks by Lucy would seem to suggest not that her will is actively complicit, but perhaps we're supposed to be understanding by that the depth to which her will has been um, undermined, right? Uh, but um, so anyway, I, I'm kind of I'm, I'm I'm kind of liking that. I'm thinking it still is very interested in mind control, but it is uh, um, it's just doing it in a very different way, a much less um, uh, sort of clumsy way than the Bela Lugosi version was doing. Again, you know, not the like, yes, I shall obey your orders kind of mental control. All right. Last thing I want to talk about is Dracula himself. Um, let's look at... Uh, the, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the scene in which he speaks. I thought we could, uh, I thought we could start with that. Um, let's listen to his lines and see how they deliver, how he delivers them. I think that that's interesting itself. So here, he's just encountered voluptuous girl, and she's gone scampering off uh, upon hearing Dracula. And so he he's sort of looking up, and he's still contemplative. He's sort of in post uh, in voluptuous encounter contemplative state here at the beginning, and then. <gasps> There is a man in a very impressive cape standing at the top of the stairs. Look how much faster he moves than Bela Lugosi. Remember Bela Lugosi descending the stairs at the beginning of that? Notice how he also is introduced descending the stairs. Notice how much less cobwebby the stairs are. That, of course, is something we haven't even talked about. How well-appointed Dracula's house is compared to any castle Dracula we've seen so far. <clears throat> Both Nosferatu and... Um, the one in, in Bela Lugosi were practically ruins, right? Um, such that Renfield, the character, even expressed the doubt as to whether he'd come to the right place. Like, I thought I was going to Castle Dracula, but here I was in this ruin 
filled with armadillos, haha, right? Um, this, of course, is not the case here at all, and he descends quite briskly and in a businesslike fashion. Mr. Harker, I'm glad that you arrived safely. Count Dracula. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust that you have found everything you needed. Thank you, sir. It was most thoughtful. Um, what do you make of this? What do you make of this? Um, do you, uh, do you see what I mean? Um, I don't know about you. I was quite surprised by this. I began to be, I was not surprised by this. This was more or less exactly what I was expecting. I mean, okay, I was not expecting those columns. But apart from the columns, I was expecting this. Right, Dracula looking with the slick back hair. His hair's always slick back, except when he's really excited. And he's wearing his cape, right? This is like, ah, right, okay, that's Dracula, right? As soon as he starts, like, rushing down the stairs, thump, 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 thump. And then he spoke so quickly and casually. I'm glad that you arrived safely. Very businesslike. Count Dracula. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. Notice how unominous that is. I am Dracula. Right. Bella Lugosi. I am Dracula. Welcome to my house. Right. Um, sounds like he should be, like, you know, just offering him a handshake or something. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust that you have found everything you needed. Thank you, sir. It was most thoughtful. It's the least that I could do after such a journey. Yes, it is a long journey. And tiring for you, no doubt. Permit me to show you to your room. Thank you, sir. Now, please, allow me. Unfortunately, my housekeeper is away at the moment. A family bereavement, you understand. I love the family bereavement, right? It's like, what happened to her? Unfortunately, I ate her family recently, uh, so I let her go on leave. Um, uh, remember the scene when he picks up Jonathan's suitcase for him in the book? Again, picking up on a detail directly out of the book. Oh, no, allow me. This struck Jonathan as this sort of stately antique courtesy. Again, it's like he's encountering a nobleman. It was almost as if he were encountering a, no, encountering a nobleman from a different age, right? And aware of, like, confronting manners which were not quite like his own or he would expect in an English gentleman. There's none of that kind of distance here. These are two men of the world meeting, right? Um, and they're kind and they're polite, and but their exchange is not interesting, yeah, there's, it's not like fraught with ominous overtones. It's not, I mean, again, I'm contrasting here primarily with the meeting between Bella Lugosi and Renfield, right? You know, with the cobwebs and the, we'll pause halfway up the stairs to say, listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make, right? Uh, uh, in the creepy smile, and then I'm going to walk through the cobwebs, and then I'm going to say things about the blood is the life, Mr. Renfield, right? I mean, that film does a really good job of convey conveying the, like, 
I am somewhere deeply strange. Again, that entering of the other world, right? Renfield has crossed the line into the other world that's full of possums and armadillos. And uh, and he is, I mean, it's creepy and he's weirded out. And, and, and uh, yes, right? He has no idea what to say or what to do. Jonathan Harker is totally at his ease, apart from the fact that he knows that this dude has a reign of terror going on and he's come here uh, to snuff him out. Apparently he's uh, like an operative of the vampire scholars association but anyway like we don't get that right no, no, none of the symbolism none of the creepiness it's all what everything everything prepared for your comfort he speaks so quickly even the fact that he took the stairs two at a time going up strikes me as just kind of i don't know jaunty right, as soon as you wish there are a large number of volumes to be fixed how oh, right the cataloging let's get to the cataloging we carry on walking at a very normal pace, in silence, taking the stairs two at a time. Is there anything else you require, Mr. Harker? No, I don't think so. You've been very kind. On the contrary, it is entirely my privilege. I consider myself fortunate to have found such a distinguished scholar to act as my librarian. I like quiet and seclusion. This house, I think, offers that. Then we are both satisfied. An admirable arrangement. Okay, again, throughout the conversation, I'm waiting for, like, the weighty double entendre, right? I kept waiting for some setup line, some dramatic irony. I mean, maybe, maybe there was some there. I mean, I found myself, like, trying really hard to read into some of these lines, right? I was waiting for, like, I never drink wine, right? You know, that kind of line, you know what I mean? We didn't get anything, and it's... This house, I think, offers that. I like seclusion. This house, I think, offers that. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm like, okay, maybe that's kind of uh, significant, but I don't see how. And then he turns to go, and then he pauses. Then we are both satisfied, an admirable arrangement. Okay, wait. I'm like, okay, wait. We're both satisfied, an admirable arrangement. Does that mean more than it says? Uh, no, I don't think so. Then he's going to leave, but then he pauses and turns back. And I was like, oh, surely this is it. But there's just one more thing, Mr. Harker. Aha, here it comes, right? Something ominous, some warning, some cue to us as the audience as to what the heck is going on here. I have to go out, and I will not be back until after sundown tomorrow. But until then... Please look upon this house as your own. Good night, Mr. Harker. Okay, that was disappointing. Please look upon this house as your own. No, like, you will take care where you sleep because there are bad dreams waiting and I shall not be answerable. I mean, nothing, just like, you have the run of the place. I mean, I'm going to lock you in. But apart from that, you have the run of the place. Treat this house as your own, right? Um, and yeah, Carol and I agree. I didn't get any sense that Jonathan was part of the undead special forces to end the reign of terror either until that's why his right after this is when he sits down to write his journal and we get the big reveal about the reign of terror. And that's why I was so totally floored by that because this just seems perfectly good night, sir. And that, by the way, was, if I'm remembering correctly, that was Dracula's last line. 
That's it. I don't think he ever speaks again through the entire rest of the film. Um, okay. All right. One of my favorite moments coming up. Van Helsing following on the trail of Jonathan Harker. I love it. I love it. And then hers. He's almost run down by a hearse. I mean, first of all, getting run over by a hearse is, of course, a, a very ironic way to die. Two things crossed my mind as soon as I saw that scene. You've got this. First of all, yeah, Tom, it's a white coffin. I mean, gaudy, right? And unexpected. Secondly, it's from the book. Or rather, it recalled to me a line from the book. Uh, as soon as I saw this, the first thing that crossed my mind was, uh, for the dead travel fast, right? That quote from Goethe that that uh, uh, that the people in the carriage in the Borgo Pass quote, right? Um, for the dead travel fast, yeah. And then my second, my next thought was, you know, why is why is that hearse in such a hurry? I mean, you don't usually see that, right? Why is that hearse in such a hurry? And then Arthur, the answer occurred to me, right? Because he's late. <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, yeah. But seriously, I have an important point there. Why is he hurrying? Right? I get in the book, not only does he have an enormous logistical project to achieve with the whole traveling, the setup of the whole travel, and it's it's you know, this multi-stages and he's got it all set up in advance and and he's and on the way home he's in a hurry, right? And he's trying to get trying to escape and where's he rushing to? I mean, what what's his hurry? I don't I don't understand why he's making this really conspicuous cross-country journey in a racing open hearse. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, he wants to meet Lucy, Margaret. Uh, maybe he's intemperate in his desire to meet the fiancé of the dude he just offed, or rather changed into a vampire. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> Nancy says he needs to get to Lucy before the camera does, apparently. Also, Am I the only one thinking that Count Castle Dracula could improve by a few more locks on the doors? Everyone just waltzes in. I mean, this place is complete. There's, this is a low security place, Castle Dracula, um, which under the circumstances is really rather surprising. Um, I mean, again, I'm kind of joking, but I'm, I'm not joking either. I mean, it's there's this sense of openness. We, we see twice Van Helsing, no, three times. We see Van Helsing do it twice. Jonathan do it once at the very beginning. Just approach from the outside, waltz straight up to the door, um, open the door and wander around at will. Um, and it's such a big contrast to how Castle Dracula is depicted um, in the film. Or in the book, rather, right? Um, you know, doors, doors, doors. Jonathan says, you know, and, you know, and all of them are locked, and he can't escape. Um, Tony says he wants us to enter of our own free will. Maybe, maybe. Um, but uh, you know, Gerald is wondering who's going to steal from Dracula. 
Um, I get it. Carolyn is just amazed that uh, it's neat as a pin, like even the upper ledges are dusted. You're right, Carolyn. No greater contrast could there be between this Castle Dracula and the Castle Dracula of the Bela Lugosi version, right? I mean, could you imagine, like, uh, I mean, they would... Uh, imagine what would happen if, if, like, an armadillo broke into this castle, right? I mean, it just would be so out of place. Um, yeah. So, I agreed. Agreed. It's... Um, so I, I am making a serious point about Castle Dracula there. I, I do think the whole atmosphere of Castle Dracula is is very different. And the fact that you can just walk up from outside and come straight in like that uh, seems to me to be kind of part of it. Um, okay, a little bit more on Dracula here. This is second attack on Mina. Arthur nobly standing guard with his Silver cross in his hands. Mina looking shifty, just like Lucy. She gonna open the door, but oh, her husband is gonna thwart her, right? Or Dracula, not her, but and her, right? Here she comes. Sneaking. She gonna wait and see if anyone's at the door? No. Repulsion, right? Her face shows it very clearly. Look how much different they're going to bed is here than with Lucy, right? Remember Lucy, like, arranging herself fetchingly upon the bed, right? Um, as if to await the amorous attentions of whoever was going to sneak in through the window, who is set to sneak in through the window, right? And again, my point is that, at least in her actions, she looked very complicit. Um, uh, she looked willing until the last minute, right, when she was obviously creeped out and totally not into it. Um, but all of her behaviors up to that point looked like, I know what I'm doing and I am consenting in advance, right? This is not the same. He is backing her over to the bed. She is backing away from him and running out of room here, I think. And I mean, this is, I mean, she does kind of make that turn and could perhaps back over this way. But you see what I mean? This is more like I'm acting under compulsion. That sense of coercion here seems to be a good deal stronger. Love the owl. <laughs> Scream by proxy. Um, okay. All right. First of all, I love her face here, right? She goes from... I'm being compelled. I'm... Like... There's the, the blank affect, which perhaps suggests mesmerism, right? And then 
his fierce little fierce little snarl there, right? And her face changes from terror to see this little little voluptuous action there, right? To so she changes from terror to compliance. I would say. Do you see what I'm saying? Right there. It's like she gives in. Again, still under compulsion. It's a different kind of compulsion. The creepy I'm nuzzling your face thing that he does, right? Um, is, yeah, or Arthur or acceptance, quite possibly. Um, it is, Joyce, I agree. It's very intimate. I mean, this is... You don't have to, like, you know, nuzzle her eyebrows before you bite her neck, right? I mean, he's not just getting down to business. Here. I mean, not the biting of her neck business, if you know what I mean. It's very intimate. Um, what does this suggest about his attitude to her? And let me not do that too many more times, because... Uh, anyway... <sighs> I'm not sure what this says about Dracula himself. And like, what's, is this, yeah, I don't know. I'm really not sure what to do with that moment. I feel like I can parse their reactions, right? Because um, I do think, James, as you were saying before, that um, we are getting an attempt to depict on screen that simultaneous attraction and revulsion. Um, and I think that her face showed it really well, that terror and, 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 uh, and then changing to acceptance and even desire, uh, you know, against her will. And then his response, which seems to be a desire response on his part, right? Um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't really know. Um, okay, I'm keeping you guys late. Almost done, though. Final scene. Uh, <laughs> this absolutely cracked me up. So Dracula's rushing back to the castle, desperately trying to make it before day. When he gets to his castle, right, he's there. That's his castle in the background. What does he do? He hops out of the, of the carriage and digs, engages in some light digging, digging a grave by hand in record time, right, uh, frenziedly digging a grave before the dawn. Why? I don't really know why he's doing this. Because he doesn't have time to bury her. He's, it's for her. It's not for himself. I love this. Right? Here you go. Just chuck her in. In you go. <laughs> he just chucks in. He starts throwing dirt on her body. What's the plan here? She's like, what? And she wakes up with the dirt? And then he just chucks it at her face. I, I don't... Is, he's trying to kill her? Surely there's more efficient ways than digging a whole grave. Look! He's dug a grave for... I don't understand the grave. Then we get the chase scene. Fortunately, there are no locks on the doors. After him, Captain Von Trapp. 
Yes, we do get the black horses and white horses uh, contrast, Joyce. Yes. See, now all the hunting trophies and everything kind of come relevant. Ah, he went that way. <laughs> I love that look on his face. Like, oh, right there. Oh, you caught me in my trapdoor. I was going to go down the trapdoor next to the throne. He's got a throne in this room, right? Uh, and I, he has a trapdoor under his throne. He pushed his throne to the side because uh, this is where the, uh, the, the woman was like crouching in her feral position on the floor before, right? Oh, you caught me going down. The, I can't go down the trapdoor anymore for some reason. I'm going to chuck a candlestick at you. Oh, yeah, made you duck. Um, also... It didn't talk about it explicitly. Dracula does not have the strength of 20 men. There's no way he has the strength of 20 men. Remember, like, I noticed this at the very beginning when he and John Jonathan Harker were grappling, right? And he kind of pushes Jonathan Harker back. I expected Jonathan Harker to fly back and slam up against the wall, but he doesn't. He just, like, barely manages to nudge him back. Um, so whenever he's engaging in uh, in grappling, both with Van Helsing and with Jonathan Harker, he certainly does not seem to have the strength of 20 men in his hands as uh, uh, in the book. You gotta slick back your hair there. You're getting a little bit uh, unkempt. There. Oh! Not the whole fake asphyxiation thing. Oh, you're gonna fall for that, Dracula? You're not even gonna feel his pulse? Oh! See, real Dracula wouldn't be thrown off like that. Alright, what now? Okay, I'm Dracula. I'm allergic to sunlight. First of all, two things. First of all, I think I'm going to see the guy headed to the curtains. I'm going to be a little bit more cautious about that, even if I do have my red glowy eyes. And secondly, I, I don't know about you, but I think I'm investing in something a little bit more than drapes. Okay? If this is my house... I mean, I know I don't come upstairs during the day anyhow, so it might seem moot. But, um... But I think I'm getting shutters, frankly. Or maybe bricks. So you can make a cross out of candlesticks and it still works. Now, here's my other question. Does the sunlight turn him to dust? Is this uh, an extreme allergic reaction? Or is it just that it kills his flesh, which fades into dust because he should have been dead? Yeah, it's a little gross. Notice the only things left of him are his primary vampire characteristics. Uh, his canine teeth, his fangs, right? His intense red eyes. Um, well, okay, and his nasal cartilage. Uh, well, and his dew. Um, but, okay, so, like, the humanity has all died and all that's left is, like, the last lingering remnant of his... Uh, uh, of his... Of his uh, uh, of his vampire nature before it is finally snuffed out. Um, I do think that um, this is uh, exactly Joyce, as you say, he's supposed to be 500 plus years old. He falls to dust when he dies. Absolutely. I think that that's clearly what we're seeing here. But again, the implication, like with his foot in his hand, the implication seems to be that he, uh, uh, that like the sun turns him to dust, 
right? Now, I mean, of course, we have to do, you know, like controlled experiments. We need to get the biologists involved, right, in order to really kind of figure this out. Um, Tom, I do like the idea that his hair doesn't go, right? Just like, I mean, you know, because it wouldn't, right? In his tomb 500 years later, there'd, there'd like still be hair. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom, the, uh, um, I, I, I read somewhere that the Greek motto on the floor is a quote from the Odyssey, I think, but I forget which one it is. There's a Latin quote, too, which I think is from, oh, I forget where. And the fading of the mark on her palm. Uh-huh. She looks a little bit plus minus about the whole thing. She's really taking it pretty calmly. Oh, there goes his hair. I love the hair fur ball. <laughs> the housekeeper is going to be furious when she comes home. I mean, she left this place immaculate. And now look at it. Dust bunnies everywhere. And his dusty hand is blown away. His signet ring is left, sitting on the sign for Aquarius. Oh, is that Latin motto on the... Hang on a second. Mick says, over the fireplace? There's a Latin... See, you can... There's Greek in the inner ring, and there's Latin on the outer ring. And there's the symbols of the zodiac, both the the signs of the zodiac and then the 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 pictograms of the zodiac. Um, and it's Aquarius. He dies on Aquarius. I don't know why. Mick is saying he saw a a uh, thing above the fireplace. I didn't see the fireplace. Where's the fireplace? Over here. I didn't see a Latin phrase over there. Was it when he was being suffocated? I was really entranced by the hair here, so I wouldn't have noticed it. No. I don't see it. I don't see it, Mick. Um, oh, was that the beginning, was it? Okay. Um, anyway, okay, anyhow, sorry, sorry, my apologies. I don't know what to make of the symbolism here. I mean, that thing is obviously important. Um, and the globe is right next to it. Indeed, the globe starts like with one foot on it, right? I refuse to believe that that globe is accidental, by the way. I just, I don't believe it. You can say whatever you want. I don't believe it. I don't know what it means, but I refuse to believe that it means nothing. And, uh, um, and again, the Aquarius, it's got to be something, but I don't really quite know what. All right, one last passage, and I promise you I'm done. The opening. One last little piece of vampire symbolism. Shout out to James Bernard and John Hollingsworth. Excellent, very noisy music. Excellent bassoon solo. Always appreciate a good bassoon solo. Do you think this fixation on the uh, eagle there is like some kind of anti-Poland propaganda? 
That was my first thought when I first... Because the eagle's the first thing you see, right? You know, the eagle with its wings looking very Polish, right? But like at Castle Dracula? I don't know, I'm just saying. You know, it kind of looked a little suspicious to me. Um... We're slowly panning around to the crypt down the stairs. Dracula's tomb with the lid, which it will soon lose for good. Uh huh. There it is. And the blood dripping on his name, his nameplate on his tomb. That's the visual symbol that we begin the film with, which I find really interesting, right? Um, is this like the ancient name of Dracula being coated in blood, right? Um, that is to say, it's, uh, I, 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 especially with the whole, like the ancient, you know, it's not ancient, like that castle doesn't look ancient for one thing, right? But anyway, the kind of old-ish castle. Um, I mean, that that castle, Castle Dracula looks like it could easily be an American structure, right? It doesn't even look European old. Um, you saw that thing in Europe. That would obviously not be the oldest house on its block if that castle were in Europe. It would, I mean, at least that's, that's, that's the look of it, and certainly from the interior. Um, but... Uh, um, Okay. Um, okay. So you have the oldish castle, right? With the nameplate of Dracula on his tomb and then the blood falling upon it. Again, as if like the tradition of old is being tainted, but he himself is old. I wasn't sure what to do with this and how to frame this. Um, all right. It's late. I will let you guys go. Um, we'll think about this next time. I want to be. I want to be trying to push these things together a little bit more. What are we seeing here? What kind of conclusions can we draw? Um, I think we saw some interesting things here tonight. We haven't really pulled it together much to draw conclusions. I'll try to do that a bit next week and be a little bit more efficient with our next film. The next film, of course, that we're doing is the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. Um, uh, uh, family uh, parental discretion is advised on the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. Just saying, um, uh, but um, I know the next one's longer, Nancy. But you wait and see. I'm going to be super efficient. You just won't even believe how efficient I'm going to be. Um, so, uh, uh, so we're going to talk about that next week. I want to be thinking about trends, not trying to draw some fake conclusion from like these as if they were a single pool of films all directly related to each other. Um, that's a little artificial. This is, you know, I've, I've pulled these not quite out of a hat, but um, I've, I've selected these with a, a sort of by, by a very non-scientific process. Um, but I am interested in making, doing some comparison and contrast. What kind of changes do we see? What, how is this story... Um, you know, kind of altering over time as we're seeing it retold again and again. Thanks everybody for joining me and I will see you guys next week for our penultimate class on Dracula. Thanks very much, but guys, good night.